0: That brings us to where we're starting today, the second of the five books of the Jewish law or Torah or Pentateuch as it's called. We're starting with Exodus, and we're going to look at an overview of the rest of the history of the Old Testament. But it's not just a look at history. It's also a look at the relevance to us today. I mean, why do we care about the Old Testament? We're Christians. We're supposed to be all about the New Covenant or the New Testament. Well, nothing in the New Testament makes sense outside the context of the old. And the old was a foreshadowing of the new anyway. So now we are ready to begin the book of Exodus. And I've divided up this part, which is going to be the first three chapters of Exodus, into four main sections. So this first section explains how the people that were descended from Abraham, descended from Israel and his 12 sons, how they wound up enslaved in Egypt. So let me remind you of where we are, actually. You see that red arrow there, right there beside the Nile Delta, close to Ramesses, was the land of Goshen. And that was suitable land to pasture uh, sheep, And of course, the uh, Israelites at that time were farmers, were shepherds. And so there they were. And uh, that old generation is dying off. And so here we are in Exodus 1. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, you know, because Joseph is dead. He lived to be 110. He was number two in control over all Egypt. And he presided over the taking care of the people during the famine because he was the one that God had given the insight that the famine was actually coming. But a new king came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Now they started out 70 people, but as we get a little further down in the generations, these are prolific people and they're growing, growing, growing. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will join our enemies. Now, of course, you can see that I have to truncate the message because it's so much of an overview that we would get down in the weeds too much. So pardon me as we do the Reader's Digest version of this text. But bottom line, they decided they'd better strike while they could and they enslaved the people to keep them from joining with their enemies. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built store cities for Pharaoh. So if you can imagine what it would be like one day when you're living as a free agent in the land to say, we are now officially your slave masters and you are to be controlled by us you are not your own anymore. We're going to tell you where to go and what to do. When we say jump, your response is to ask how high. And all day, every day, you're working for us. It's not about your prosperity. We are in control. So you can imagine all the things they had them doing, everything they didn't want to do. The ditch digging and the brick making and the the hard construction of these cities. You know, Egypt was in its heyday at that time. They were the technological wonder of the world. And they had to have lots and lots of manual labor in order to accomplish this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Now, let me remind you that most people don't like to work for someone else as slave labor really, really hard until they're exhausted all day, every day. So how do you enforce that? Oh, you beat them, you yell at them, you get out there and you tell them, if you don't do this, you're going to be a bloody mess, or we're going to kill you if you don't do what we say. So it was pitiful and pathetic. And so you can see these husbands coming home day after day, just worn completely out. Life becomes joyless and becomes a grind and there's nothing to look forward to and there's no days off. They made their lives bitter. You know, bitter is one of the strongest words for what life is to be like. It goes beyond depression to this blackness that just takes every single bit of anything good out of life. And here we have them restating, just so you know for sure, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Well, it didn't work. They just continued to proliferate and they continued to worry Pharaoh because they were growing, growing, growing. So the king decided to take another tactic and he called in the two Hebrew midwives whose names were Pua and Shipra, and he said to these ladies, you know, they were the OBGYNs of the day, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, because you know they didn't lay in a bed to give birth like we do now, they sat up because it helps. And when they're on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Okay, now we're going to resort to infanticide. This is enslavement. This is make your life bitter or deny you the right to life at all. And then finally, it got so bad that Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I thought you might be interested in this particular old picture you can see the king giving that edict to those two women in Pua and Shipra. And then you look over on the right and you see a man or a woman, looks like a man because he's got a beard, got a hold of a baby and he's headed to the Nile. And we're gonna throw the babies in the Nile. This looks like maybe one of the fathers of the Israelites. And uh, in anguish, he is looking up at that command from the king. And I was also thinking about our um, acquaintance with slavery today might be human trafficking and we're still thinking back to the 1800s and before when the United States had slaves. And uh, I pulled up some old images that came from the 1800s that had to do with the slave trade. This was an illustration of the branding of a woman who had gotten off the ship. So imagine, you know, just like a a cow, just bring her over here and burn a brand into her hide. You are a piece of property, you exist to serve me, and whatever I decide is what your life will be. Here's another one. This one says, flogging a slave fastened to the ground. So do you see how he's uh, got his arms and legs fastened to it looks like tent pegs with a rope, and somebody's just flogging him. If that horrifies you, and why are we talking about this again? Maybe we should remember that these are shadows and types and relevant to today. The reason this is in the Bible is because it wasn't just that the Israelites were enslaved back then. All people today are enslaved by sin now. And it's the same sort of thing. Jesus said in John 8 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And Paul said in Romans 6 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness lending to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So the evil one, he's a terrible slave master. And sin is a terrible thing that, you, that people find themselves um, bound by. Peter said they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved so as we finish the first of the four sections of today's lesson i want you to see the comparison between what those israelites were going through then as they found themselves enslaved to the egyptians and what fallen humanity in general has been to sin since the time of adam and eve they were controlled by pharaoh well we're controlled by our addictions and our lusts. We just naturally sin. You don't have to teach a little toddler how to lie. They know how to do it. The Israelites were the physical property of Pharaoh, but we, until we are set free by our deliverer, we're the property of the evil one. The Israelites had lost their rights and the ability to control their own lives. Well, we find ourselves in that same condition. You see people that are addicted to all sorts of different things. It could be alcohol or medications or street drugs, but it might be uh, addiction to uh, gambling or shopping, or it it might be a lust for power or, or just pride that has their eyes blinded. The Israelites were subjected to bitter punishments. Will fallen humanity, as slave to sin, will be subjected to eternal punishment. So that brings us to the very important part two, the birth of a deliverer. God made a way for those people. So here they are. They had just been told, okay, now when you women give birth, if it's a boy, he's going in the Nile. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Well, you find out later that this is really kid number three. They had a boy, a girl and a boy. Their oldest was a daughter named Miriam, and then they had a boy named Aaron. And when this baby was born, that little boy was a (laughs) toddler of about three When she saw that he was a fine child, by the way, her name was Jochebed. You find that out later too. And her husband's name was Amram. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So people are not very motivated to call the midwife when they know it might be a boy and he could be killed. And so they're just trying to do this on their own. And Pua and Shipra are ignoring what Pharaoh said to do anyway and defying his command. And so the Lord is blessing them with their own families, we find out in another place. But this is a painting of Jacobed and baby Moses, as he comes to be known. But this three-month-old baby, they get louder, and they start staying awake more hours of the day. And you are gonna be in a heap of trouble and your whole family could be imprisoned or killed. If it's found out that you defied the order, something's gotta be done. And let's see, what was the rule again? All baby boys go in the Nile. Hmm. I wonder how we could keep to the letter of the law and yet not take the child's life. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. You know that's oil country over there. And they have places where the petroleum's coming to the surface in tar pits. And so they knew, they didn't know it could be burned for fuel, but they knew it was great for waterproofing something. So she made him a little basket and she waterproofed it with this tar. She put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So I don't know how old Miriam was at this point, six or seven or eight maybe, and she watches and hears that little baby. He's in the Nile, so okay, they've technically complied. He's in the Nile, but he's floating along in a basket. Just keeping to the law. So you know the story they put him right down there where Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe with her entourage of ladies and servants. And they come down there and she's stepping down into the water and she looks out there and she sees something bobbing and she asks one of her lady servants to go and retrieve it and they go and get it and it's a blanket. And so they open the blanket and at that time little baby Moses begins to cry and something rises up in her that fills her with compassion, and she wants him for her own. And so, you know, I I love this beautiful painting. The little sister, is the big sister is standing right there, and she runs over and she said, would you like me to get a nurse for the baby? They didn't have formula and bottles. You can't nurse a baby if you haven't been pregnant. And so what are we gonna feed this baby? Need a wet nurse. And so she says, would you like me to go and find Uh, A nurse for the baby. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, well, sure, that'd be great. And so she brings to her the child's own mother. So here stands Jochebed in front of Pharaoh's daughter, this woman who has decided to give this baby the right to life. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So now we're gonna let him live and we're gonna let you be the mom for a while and we're gonna pay you for it. So the woman took the child and nursed him and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him, drew him out of the water. So this is a painting of the day that came when he was weaned and maybe he's three or four and it's time for him to go and live with Pharaoh's daughter. It must've been heartbreaking, but it wasn't near as heartbreaking as his death. So here at the end of part two, we see this marvelous parallel again. First, we have the parallel of the enslavement of the Israelites to the Egyptians and the enslavement of all people to Satan and sin today. So now we have the birth of a deliverer. So when Moses was born, the conditions were that a cruel ruler had ordered baby boys to be killed in Goshen. And in the time of Jesus, maybe you recall that after Herod spoke to the wise men, and found out that the wise men regarded this baby Jesus as a king, he ordered all the baby boys killed in the house of, Be- of bread, uh, Bethlehem. So in the days of Moses, his life was saved in the house of Pharaoh, which is where he was raised. But in the days of Jesus, his family had to flee to Egypt, you know, until Herod died. And they lived there for a few years, perhaps living on the proceeds they got from the gold and frankincense and myrrh, but their lives were saved in the country of Pharaoh. Isn't it beautiful how the Lord shows us something and shadows and types in the Old Testament, and then you move over to the New Testament, and you see how it all blooms out in this reality all over again and repeats itself So that was the birth of a deliverer. So then now it's time to prepare this deliverer. Part three. So we come to chapter two, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, maybe his mother had somehow prepared him. Maybe she was allowed to come and visit him as he grew older and as he became a teenager. I don't know how much access he had to the Hebrew people, but he did relate to them and he knew where he came from and he knew who his brother and sister were. But after he had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. So maybe they were dressed in rags and hadn't bathed in days because there wasn't time. And maybe they look kind of ratty. And he is in splendor. He's dressed in these soft robes. He looks like a prince. And somebody has helped him do his eye makeup. You know how they do with the black line that makes the cat eye for the Egyptians? (laughs) That's what I pictured. And the headdress, he looks like the heir to the throne. And he's walking around. You know that he was shy. And you know that he had trouble speaking. And so he didn't say a whole lot. He just watched And so he comes and he watches these people and he knows that those are his people. And perhaps also he has some sort of a sense from his mom and from his dad that really he was called to be a deliverer. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. I showed you that picture a few slides back of the black man who was was strapped to the ground and being beaten. That would tear your heart out if you had any kind of a heart at all to see someone being beaten like that. And so I don't know if the man was infirm or he couldn't keep up or he was having a bad day. Maybe he just had a migraine headache and it was so hard to work that day. And the Egyptian is getting up in his face and screaming at him and he's got a whip and finally he just starts beating this guy. Who knows, maybe he even took the the guy's uh, robe off and was beating his back. But whatever it was, it made Moses very, very angry and sick. And so he steps forward at this time when it's not yet his calling and it's not yet God's timing. And he looks this way and that, and he sees no one. And so he thinks the coast is clear and he killed the Egyptian You see him looking this way and that over there on your right, and he's about to pull a sword out of its sheath there. And when Pharaoh heard of this, you know, the news did get out. I've truncated it. But what happens is somebody did see it. And the next day when Moses comes out to observe his people, you know, Moses has had this guy buried in the shallow grave but another Hebrew comes up to him and instead of saying, thank you, O deliverer for standing up for us, he says, what are you doing back here? You gonna kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And he goes, oh my, it's known. I thought it was a secret, but it's known. So Moses knows that once this gets to actual Pharaoh, it doesn't matter that he's the adopted grandson. He is in a heap of trouble and he'd better flee for his life. So he runs away he went down to live in Midian and he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. So uh, you don't see that many really big families where all of the kids are just one gender or the other. It happens occasionally, but it's pretty rare. So you can expect back then that big families were common but to have no boys at all, they were probably kind of disappointed. They would probably really have liked to have had some sons to help them do the work. So they're shepherds and they have these daughters and these daughters go to the well to take care of the animals, but there's bullies all around and there's not very much respect for women. And so it's this big colossal hassle every time they go to the well, because if there's any men there at all, then you can just step back and wait because they're not gonna let you come within a country mile of that well until they're done with it. And so once again, Moses who has a heart of compassion sees this and he gets angry when he sees the bullying. So here he is and he decides to stick up for these ladies. And so he says, wait just a minute here. These women were here first, you can back off It's their turn and they're gonna water their animals and you're gonna sit there like a respectful gentleman and wait. And that wasn't in the Bible, but that's what I was thinking. (laughs) But anyway, he makes them wait and the ladies are real impressed, but they don't have the social graces or the sense to do anything more than say, thank you very much. So they go home. And they say, Dad, their dad says, What are you doing back so quick today? And they said, You won't believe what happened. We went to water the animals, and then the bullies came as usual and they made us get out of the way. And so we were just sitting there, and this man comes up. He says his name is Moses, and he stood up for us and he got all of our flocks watered for us. And the priest of Midian says, Okay, where is he? Are you crazy? What kind of manners is that? Why didn't you invite him home? And so they went back, found him, and said, our father respectfully invites you to have dinner with us this evening. Well, you know the rest of this story. Moses ended up marrying one of the daughters whose name was Zipporah. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and this was really good chemistry. Moses found a friend in this, this man uh Ruel, his name was, the priest of Midian, and uh, they had a lifelong friendship. By this time, Moses is in his 40s, and uh, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Well, she ended up having two boys, and so this was a nice life. I don't know how long they were married before those boys were born, but for the next 40 years, it's just this quiet, peaceful, forget-all-about-all-that-stuff-that-happened-over-there kind of life. He apparently had some contact with his birth family because he knew where they were and he had access to them. He knew Miriam, he knew Aaron. I don't know when his parents passed away, but he just lived a quiet life out on the desert. And the Lord was preparing because he was gonna be in charge of a nation of hundreds of thousands of people for 40 years and taking care of people is exhausting. And the name pastor actually means shepherd. Did you know that? And he was gonna have to pastor these people all that time. And so for the next 40 years, he's kind of in school and he's being prepared because he's shepherding these sheep. Hmm. Really interesting preparation. Maybe it looked something like this. He was just out all day, every day, not wearing, he didn't have an entourage of servants like he used to. He didn't paint that black thing around his eyes that came up like a cat eye. Didn't wear a fancy headdress. Didn't have people with big giant leaves on sticks fanning him all the time. He wiped his own sweat. He didn't take a bath near as often. He just lived in the desert and he learned how to be taking care of people. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' life. You know, when Jesus came to be 12 years old, he went to the temple with his parents and he was studying with the elders and the teachers, but it wasn't time yet. And so when his mama came to get him, you know, because he got uh, kind of separated from him and they worried about him for three days because they thought he was lost. And so when his mom and dad came to get him and his mom said, son, why have you done this to us? We've been worried. He went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. And you know, he was 12 then and his, his ministry didn't start until he was 30. So that was 18 years of living a quiet life. He wasn't a shepherd, he was a carpenter. But you know it occurs to me? That Jesus' preparation was parallel to Moses in some key aspects. Moses lived quietly as a shepherd in the desert for 40 years. Jesus lived quietly as a carpenter in Nazareth for 18 years. Moses, as a shepherd, has to learn to see potential. So you see this scraggly little lamb, and you think, okay, that could become a ewe, and the ewe could be productive, and the ewe could be sheared every year. And this woolly coat that's kind of dirty and got stickers in it, that could be a beautiful sweater that keeps someone warm. You see potential, and you work hands-on, don't you? And you develop patience and compassion for those dumb sheep. Sheep aren't the smartest of all the animals. And here's Jesus working as a carpenter and he sees potential. He looks at a piece of driftwood and he goes, that could be a table leg. Or he sees how a tree trunk might be used to make a chair. And he works hands on and he develops patience because you don't make furniture for a home in 20 minutes especially when you don't have high-tech tools and everything is by hand. And you see the rough spots and you sand and sand and sand and you work it like that. And so those were two preparations. Moses was prepared to be a deliverer of the children of Israel and Jesus was prepared with a quiet, ordinary, everyday life for years and years uh, as a carpenter at home. And then we get to part four, the call of the deliverer. And we're still in Exodus chapter two. During that long period, I mean, 40 years, that's a giant chunk of anybody's life, even if they live to be over 100. That's a big span of time. So he's moving on and those boys are getting older. But during that long period, the king of Egypt died The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out because even though the king of Egypt died, the one that replaced him was just as hard on the Israelites. And there's still the back-breaking labor, and there's still the whip, and there's still the no rights, and there's still all these rules about killing baby boys. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And today, when we cry out to him, and he sees us burdened down with sin, He still hears and listens. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham because he had told Abraham a long time ago that this was all going to happen. He said, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years. It's not like... When it all happened, the Lord was surprised and then he said, oh my, I've got to do something. I need to come up with a deliverer some way. It was all planned out way in advance, just like Jesus who was slain before the foundations of the world. You tracking with me here? And so God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So one day, Moses is out tending the flock of Jethro, or Ruel, his other name, the priest of Midian, his father-in-law that he loved so much. And he comes to a bush, and he looks off in the distance and notices it's on fire, which is already weird because that's a desert and it doesn't rain very often, so you would think that the only thing that would set something on fire would be a camper, which you might have expected you would have seen somebody if they were camping or else a a thunderstorm you know that struck a bush but he's watching it burn and then he's saying my goodness it's not burning up because he keeps watching it and so he goes up to it and a voice speaks from the bush scares him half to death says take off your shoes this is holy ground and then the voice from the bush speaks and says I'm the god of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What could this be? And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them, the call of the deliverer, out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Are you hearing this? He heard it hundreds of years before because he told Abraham he was going to do this. He knew they were going to cry and be weighted down with a heavy load and need to be delivered from their bondage. And he knew you were going to cry and have a heavy load and be in bondage to sin. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed him. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And wasn't Jesus called to bring us out of sin? And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We know when Jesus was born, Right before he was born, actually, his forerunner, his cousin, three months older, John the Baptist, was born to the high priest Zechariah. And you remember how Zechariah didn't quite believe that it would be possible that he and his postmenopausal wife would have a child. And uh, so the Lord said, "Well, here's how you're going to know that you't that you really are going to have this prophet. I'm not going to let you speak. And so he was struck dumb. Well, when they circumcised the boy when he was finally born, and everybody was surprised because he was making motions of, yes, his name is John, Don't don't name him Zechariah Jr., name him John. Then suddenly he was able to speak again, and he gave this really beautiful prophecy. And I hope you're tracking with me here, because we just talked about the call of a deliverer. And now we're in the New Testament, and we're looking at the one who will save us from bondage to sin. And it's the call on the life of a deliverer. So, you know, he's still in the womb. He's a fetus within the body of Mary, and he's not even there. But here's Zechariah, and here's baby cousin John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. And here's the high priest, and he's going to give a message to all the people gathered there for this happy occasion. And he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And yeah, there's some prophecy in there too about his own boy who was right there and being circumcised and was supposed to be the focus of the day. But he's mostly focusing here on Jesus who wasn't even born yet and that John the Baptist would serve And then Jesus said later in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He knew the calling on his life. Isn't that beautiful? Here is a picture. It's more than one event put together. You look in the upper right-hand corner and you see Elizabeth giving birth. There she's got her newborn. And then you look there in the main part of the picture and you see the little infant John the Baptist who has just been circumcised and the women are tending to him and he's getting ready to be nursed for comfort because it was kind of traumatic. And then you look over on the right and you see Father Zechariah, the high priest, and he's not focusing on John the Baptist all that much. He's talking about the horn of salvation, the one who's gonna deliver his people from their sins. Are you seeing here? We have another parallel. Moses was sent for slaves in bondage to Pharaoh. Jesus' whole purpose was sent for slaves in bondage to sin. And if you think that this is a little contrived and that I just sort of forced it and worked it together and that's not really what the scriptures mean, let me direct you to another book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is talking about his own self and he says to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then he quotes the Lord, and he says, this is what the Lord said to me. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. You see, that's why it would be worth your time to come to a Sunday school class about Old Testament history instead of focusing always only on the New Testament, because they work together. They perfectly complement each other. The one prepares us for the other. And so, just as we see the Israelites delivered from bondage in Egypt, we also can be delivered from bondage to sin. What was the bottom line again? God sent Israel to deliver to bring them out of bondage. This is us